I'm correspondent Tom Wilmer reporting from the world-class San Antonio Museum of Art. Come along and join me for a fascinating conversation with the museum's council director, Emily Neff, Ph.D., A visit to the San Antonio Museum of Art, housed in the legendary old Lone Star Brewery, takes you around the world and through 5,000 years of art. The museum is renowned for housing the most comprehensive ancient Greek, Roman, and Egyptian art collection in the entire southern United States. The Nelson A. Rockefeller Latin American Art Wing spans the ages from the ancient Americas to the present and includes an outstanding collection of popular art. In the contemporary galleries, works of internationally recognized artists share prominence with notable Texas and regional art. The comprehensive Asian art wing displays works from Korea, India, and Japan, and includes a very important Chinese ceramics collection. Coming up is the museum's The Age of Armor, treasures from the Higgins Armory Collection, February 16th, 2024 through May 12th, 2024. Come along and join Emily Neff, Ph.D. Emily Neff, the Kelso Director at the San Antonio Museum of Art. And you're right in the heart of town, the historic brewery. We are. We love to say how we are the only accredited art museum in the United States of America that began its life as a brewery. And that's a story that you just can't, can't make, make up. It up. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. what I love about it, you know, is that, and this is a bit of a pun, but it gives this extraordinary canvas against which you can see our collection. And our collection of over 30,000 objects comes from all over the world. So it lends a character and distinction to the collection that is also very much rooted in place. This is San Antonio. We are mm-hmm. located right along the river. Was a historic brewery that goes way back, right? Eight, Lone Star Brewery. 1800s, yeah. Yes, 1880s, and the wooden structure was replaced in the 1890s, so the structure you see now was built by Adolphus Bush of St. Louis fame, and he mm-hmm. brought, in, brought in his architects. Bush, yeah. Exactly. He brought in his architects from St. Louis, and they worked with a local firm to create this campus, and I mean, as you have to imagine that the brewery compound was a mini city mm-hmm. with a lot of different buildings, the stables, the bathhouse, the warehouse, the hops building. The hops building is actually now our restaurant. So it is a whole little world. And it also had a garden because the idea was that people would bring their blankets on a weekend and put their blankets down and have a picnic lunch and sip beer. It was good for business, right? What caused its demise? Was it prohibition? Yes, although I will say the Lone Star business was starting to go south a little bit before that. In World War I, where grain had to be redeployed for bread and for feeding Mm -hmm. soldiers, right? And so uh, it started its downfall then. I would say that 
it did not reinvent itself enough. So a neighboring brewery called Pearl, and you may know about the Pearl Brewery and the Pearl Complex, run by, in large part, Emma Kaler, she was very smart in the way in which she came up with new products Mm -hmm. that resonated. So prohibition really was the death knell, but I would say, you know, we did try to do a near beer. Lone Star did try a couple of things, and they just did not succeed. But Lone Star is still around, right? Lone Star is still around. So the actual property owned by Pabst Mm -hmm. Brewery, but the buildings became different things and they were parceled out. We were a uniforms business. There was a textile business. There was an ice house. You know, there were a variety, an auto Mm -hmm. repair. But by the 70s, I am told it was utterly dilapidated, utterly just dead. And I'm told that if you were a, a hippie in the 1960s you squatted at the Lone Star oh, wow. Brewery complex right along the river and if you look at pictures I mean it really was falling apart mm-hmm. but it took visionary people who saw potential and who were interested in bold gestures so from the get-go was that vision interconnected with art did they, they saw this as being a premier yes yes i would say that it's a combination of two things number one san antonio definitely has its stake in the ground in terms of adaptive reuse the building stock in san antonio is the most historic city in the state of texas Mm -hmm. pretty much off the charts and either through benign neglect or through other factors we do have extraordinary building stock isn't that a paradox because of benign neglect (laughs) you inherited this priceless history well and i think it was people who wanted to preserve history we worked Mm -hmm. very closely with the san antonio conservation society it was also a very visionary leader who did want to save this building which is considered a great example of industrial architecture Mm -hmm. wanted to save the buildings but looked around there's kind of a a story that i think is in part true but it also sounds good i I wouldn't call it apocryphal but i'm sure it's a bit embellished where a former director said you know i'm going to buy one of these buildings i'm going to buy the hops house and i'm going to turn it into my home invited this visionary art patron nancy brown nagley to visit at what he intended and she said oh no you're not let's look around this is extraordinary this <laughs> could be the san antonio museum of art and what's interesting about this story too is that when it happened we became a case study around the country for adaptive reuse which is pretty common in europe i mean the right. louvre yeah. museum started as a royal palace right so the europeans know their way around adaptive reuse not so much in the united states it's you know all new build right a new build is great too but at any rate when the new york times wrote its rave review in 1981 for the San Antonio Museum of Art, it had to define for its audiences and its readers what does adaptive reuse mean. It was a concept that had been around and certainly Mm -hmm. in urban planning circles in the 60s, but it hadn't really reached the public. And so deep pride in saving this Mm -hmm. building and marrying those two histories because who else in the country marries beer with fine art? There you go. I love it. As I said, you can't make this up. Yeah. (laughs) Today, not only beyond adaptive reuse, is multi-use. Right now, as we're talking, you have Alzheimer, dementia people, 
meet up here. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then let's segue for a moment to the, what is it, the boiler room. Yes. <laughs> That's a great story. Well, the boiler room is the original boiler room, which has great acoustics. And so musicians and, and musical performers always enjoy performing in that particular space, mm-hmm. was kept relatively intact. And so it is the background for our ancient Greco-Roman collection, which is actually the largest and best in the state and the U.S. South. So it's a pretty glorious space in it. It does beautifully combine this industrial moment with great ancient Greco-Roman, in large part, sculpture. That's so cool. Talk to us about your main gallery spaces and how frequently you rotate and what your thematic approach is to sharing the art here. I'm going to try to answer it simply for you, which is that the beauty of adaptive reuse is you are saving this great history and the structural and formal and aesthetic integrity of an architect's vision from the 19th century. It doesn't always work for your collection. So I would say that there are certain collections that perform really, really well. Mm -hmm. The one that I just cited is a great example of that. I would say in other spaces, they're not so well conducive to art. We do the best we can, but it doesn't always work. Our collections have tended to be for historical reasons, endowment reasons, patron reasons, a bit siloed from a 2023, you know, playing Monday morning quarterback. Mm -hmm. And so we're currently looking at piloting different spaces that give you an idea of cross-cultural connections. Because the thing that bothers us today, you know, every generation, there's a wonderful historian who said in the 19th century, he actually said, every generation writes the history it needs. And so our galleries now tend to be culturally specific. Mm -hmm. And so from a 2023 seat, looking back, you're thinking, but wait, if people come into our building, they may not know about the Silk Roads or they may not know the the stories of cross-cultural connections, which is what connects humanity. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is going back thousands of years. So how can we help our visitors understand that there are relationships between our Latin American collection, which is our largest collection, and Asia through the Manila Galleons and trade? We're going to do it very thoughtfully with small spaces and just pilot those kinds of ideas that cover space and Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. because the collection covers all continents 5,000 years of human creativity that's a lot so how can you do it carefully but right now if you come it tends to be mostly culturally specific Mm -hmm. but with some forays that we're doing in beginning in January then of course we have an active temporary exhibition program so your whole philosophy is fluid in that you're not quite sure where you're going because only time will tell you that right bit of that for sure I mean I think art museums if we think of them as cast in amber we're missing the point Mm -hmm. we're constantly evolving and we always have been evolving art museums art history art it all changes all the time that's the fundamental Mm -hmm. right everything changes but back when you were an undergraduate a typical art museum was much more of a static place which it isn't today. It isn't today. No. And no. talk to us about 
music and mm-hmm. multi-arts that happen here? Well, we all like to come to art and provide for our visitors more entry points. I would say the difference, and you can, you'll get phone calls complaining about me when I say this, because I'm just crystallizing something, and there are lots of exceptions. But I would say that now and this is certainly something that we're doing, is it is on the same plane is art and activating art, connection and collection, community and collection on the same plane, because you can amass these great art objects Mm -hmm. and we can carefully preserve them. But if we are not animating them for our community, What's the point? So there's really more of an emphasis on how do we make these collections culturally relevant? How do we help our visitors see the resonances with the issues that are uppermost on our minds? Mm -hmm. That being said, it's implicit that you have ongoing relationship with elementary schools, junior highs, high schools, where you bring them here. Well, and you just mentioned that when you came in, we have a huge Alzheimer's and Dementia Services program that we're very proud of and a a very robust program. But you also saw a number of children coming in. And so, again, it speaks to different entry points. We take very seriously that we are the only place in the region where you can connect to the world through art. And so for students to come through and be exposed to 5,000 years of human creativity from around the world offers up way too many stories than we could ever tell. Mm -hmm. I do think something that you brought up earlier, we were talking a little bit about San Antonio as military USA. And when I came here, I had this assumption, and you know, we all have to be so careful about our assumptions. Mm -hmm. And one of my assumptions was, are we reaching, you know, we have a huge military community here, are we reaching them? And just made this assumption that maybe we weren't. Mm turns out it's actually one of our bigger membership groups. We have quite a few military. And so I went to one of our membership breakfasts and I was asking questions about that. And someone retired from the Air Force said, of course, the first thing I did was join the museum because that's how I connect to the world. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did as an Air Force pilot. And so this is how I connect with my whole life experience. And I thought that was a powerful testimony. Doesn't get any better than that. (laughs) That's so cool. Anything else that you want to share? This has been so fascinating. Well, I'm so glad that you came to visit us. I would say that our temporary exhibition programs help us to either complement and dig deep into something that we already do have on view or something that we don't have on view and don't collect in. So there is always something new and exciting going on. What's on the horizon? Well, I'll explain a little bit about two of the, the pilot programs. One is experimenting with the idea of our Asian collection. We have a great comprehensive Asian collection in the state of Texas and beyond, focused mostly on Chinese art, but also Japanese, Southeast Asian, and so forth. And we're taking one of our 17th century Japanese Edo screens and putting it on view in connection with a digital artwork by the Tokyo-based 
Team Lab, which is a consortium of artists who do the best in terms of digital artwork, and it's called the World of Irreversible Change. Visitors are going to be able to interact with something that looks like one of those 17th century Edo screens, Mm -hmm. but it's interactive. And as you manipulate some of the people in this screen Mm -hmm. surrounded by this large landscape, the figures become increasingly agitated. The work also responds to environment. So whatever the season is, if it's raining outside, it's raining on the screen. So it is also reacting to the environment. We're the first art museum in the state of Texas to debut Team Lab's work. There's a long waiting list Mm -hmm. for art institutions to show their work and we're very excited to experiment with something that is both historical Mm -hmm. and contemporary. I was at the Frist in In Nashville Nashville. yeah, Mm -hmm. recently and she was talking about rotating exhibits. Mm -hmm. Do you have special exhibits that come here? That is our special exhibition program. We Mm -hmm. have on view right now a spectacular show called American Made, Mm -hmm. paintings and sculpture from the Demel Jacobson collection. And we use that space. Sometimes we might have two exhibitions in it, sometimes one. Right now it's one. Over 250 years of American art, over 100 objects by 97 different artists, all from one collection and what I love about this installation is that our curator installed it quite differently it's not thematic you asked me earlier and that's perfectly fine to install something thematically it's also not chronological and the idea was to allow each artwork to sing with its own unique singular voice you can create your own narrative storyline if you want to but you don't have to and so it takes what we have found is it really takes the pressure off of visitors who often come in and think that they need to know something before they walk in the door Mm -hmm. and this exhibition puts the lie to that and we have found people coming to see the show one two three four times Mm -hmm. just to sort of create their own narrative of what American art is. Our docent was talking about sight lines yes and Uh that was really cool so you can create those you know there's this one beautiful beautiful painting by William McGregor Paxter of his wife Elizabeth and there is a sight line to one of her own paintings Mm -hmm. both 19th century artists and the collector does love artist couples and in part of that story in the 19th century was if you are a very talented woman artist which Elizabeth Paxton was Mm -hmm. her career suffered in the sense that women during those days became the managers of their husband's career mm-hmm. so you she is every bit in my opinion is talented and the works are on view to show that exactly. but made a different choice in order for her husband to move forward as was common during that time. So I think Diane Jacobson who pulled this collection together was actually in fulfillment of a deathbed wish of her husband. Mm -hmm. They were both passionate about American art and wanted to share American art with other Americans. They don't collect or didn't collect to put it on view in their own home, Mm -hmm. but as loans to art museums throughout the country, not intending to build their own art museum, but to loan it out where the art can have the greatest impact. 
And so she's very interested in those collecting stories. Mm -hmm. So artists, couples, artists of color, women artists. She is very nimble in that way, in the way private collectors can be. One great story, if we have time, is that her niece is adopted from Korea. And she doesn't have children of her own, loves children, loves to bring them along. She wants people to appreciate American culture, Mm -hmm. American artists, American culture. And so she goes around the world. She's been to every museum around the world. And she was taking her adopted niece around. And one day her niece just tugged her on the elbow and said, Annie, Diane, why doesn't anyone that I see when we go to these museums look like me? Oh, wow. And Diane hadn't thought about that perspective. Mm-hmm. And boy, the next day she went out mm-hmm. and she found a spectacular portrait of a Chinese immigrant. So it's not an apples to apples. I sure. mean, not yeah. literal, but very conscientious about mm-hmm. the idea of representation. So a great painting by Robert Henry from 1915 when he's out in California and painting so many people from the Chinese immigrant community. That's a real poignant portrait. And one mm-hmm. of the reasons it's resonated with me was 1915, and yet it looks so contemporary, so mm-hmm. timeless. Mm-hmm. It was really eerie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And light-filled. Yeah, um, luminous. He, mm-hmm. he's, yeah. Used, he's better known for those really dark, deep, <laughs> rich, old master backgrounds. But he goes to California, and of mm-hmm. course his... You know, that golden light definitely has an impact on him. It got him, yeah. Okay, we're about out of time. Before we go, a little short snippet about the future. What's your next rotating art show coming in the future? We have a great exhibition coming up called The Age of Armor, which is from the Higgins Collection at the Worcester Art Museum. It is primarily medieval and Renaissance armor. And it literal is armor, not paintings, literal not paintings armor. of armor, but armor. It is yeah. literally armor. Wow. And because we have a strong Japanese art collection and we just acquired two Japanese swords and we do have a samurai figure and we've done, we're also complementing that exhibition with work representing, quote unquote, the samurai spirit. But the armor show, there's so many different ways in which you can look at this. It's considered one of the greatest collections of its kind. And we don't collect in that area. So this gives us an opportunity to share it with our audiences because they're not going to see it here otherwise, with the exception of a few Corinthian helmets from ancient Greece, mm-hmm. Rome, and then, of course, these these Japanese warrior objects from a warrior culture in Japan. What a fascinating morning. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you for coming. We yeah, hope you'll come back. I definitely will. i got to come for the armor. <laughs> it's going to be pretty great. To learn more about your world. We invite you to come to our website, samuseum.org. S as in San Antonio, A as in Antonio, so samuseum.org. We are also on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, X formerly Twitter. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, we all know that, and yet every time they have to go formerly Twitter. Well, and Facebook, now Meta. Exactly. And yeah. my name is Emily Neff, and I'm the Kelso Director at the San Antonio Museum of Art. Emily, thank you so much. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer, reporting from San Antonio, Texas. We'll see you here.
You've been listening to the Lowell Thomas award-winning travel show Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer, a featured podcast on NPR.org's podcast directory. You are invited to subscribe to Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer on NPR.org, iTunes, and more than 20 other podcast channels around the world. To learn more about Tom Wilmer's journeys around America and the world, log on to thomaswilmer.com. This is Roseanne Cash, and I'm sitting here with Tom Wilmer. Please support your local NPR station. I listen to WNYC in New York, and in fact, NPR is all I listen to. If I didn't have NPR, I would feel like my lifeline to the world has been cut. So yes, please support your local NPR station. World Bicycle Relief partners with communities to deliver specially designed, locally assembled, rugged bicycles for people in need. Nearly one billion people in rural regions of the world live in communities far from the nearest paved road, walking miles every day just to survive. Distance is a barrier to attending school, receiving health care, delivering goods to market, and other critical services needed to thrive. Find out how you can help deliver rugged, dependable, life-changing bicycles to deserving communities. Log on to worldbicyclerelief.org to learn more.